Good evening, all, and welcome back for another episode of Mangum Talks. Here for another... <laughs> welcome back to Mangum Talks for another episode of Mangum Reads. This is Spencer, and I'm here with BJ. BJ, how's it going? Welcome, people. It's going pretty well, and, and it's really funny that you say that, because apparently I'm technologically impaired, and we are now up on iTunes under Mangum Talks. So maybe someday I will figure out how to have us up under Mangum Reads, or maybe our web internet guru person will give me a little bit more uh, insight or direction rather than just, yeah, you did it wrong, you should do it right. Given that my understanding of technology kind of stopped at about the tin can and the string attached to it, you're all doing better than I am, so I'll just assume it's working just fine. Yeah, close enough. Uh, sorry sorry to our extensive video audience that we've been gone for so long, but uh, between hurricanes, work, and the innumerable Jewish high holidays that occur at this time of year, we've had a few delays. But we are back, and we're ready to talk about the next book of our series. BJ, what have we moved on for this episode? So we've moved on from short stories to an actual full-length book. Um, it's not a chapter book, uh, Which, but it is a more full-length book. Um, and we, we chose, or I should say Spencer chose, cause I don't want to, to, uh, put my name to this, um, for reasons, Bars by Carrie Pratchett. for reasons that we will discuss. Yeah. For reasons that, that, that we'll discuss. And, and it's actually kind of funny because I could swear up and down that I've read a bunch of Terry Pratchett and I've definitely read Good Omens, which I thoroughly enjoy and, and maybe we'll, uh, revisit Terry Pratchett um with with that book because it is it is quite a good one in my opinion um there was a series that i read that i thought was terry pratchett and i can't find the hard copies that i have somewhere my parents could have them anyway and i was going back and i couldn't find anything basically other than the disc world and like one other series that terry pratchett had written and I came up at a loss as to what I read in the past, but basically I figured out that I hadn't really read Terry Pratchett and I might say that my first introduction wasn't my favorite, but I'm definitely, I have a copy of color of magic, the first Discworld book, and I'm definitely going to go through it. But, but, uh, kind of like maybe your, uh, most recent episode of got questions I'm probably not going to spend, you know, the, the next couple of episodes being like, oh, man, this was my favorite book yeah. ever. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be an interesting divide between the two of us, because I actually rather enjoyed this, but I'm a big celebrator. I'm a big celebrator of silly. Um, BJ, on the other hand, is going to give us a much a much different impression. And between the two of us, it'll be an interesting listen. But I, hmm? I, I don't peg you for really silly, but I but I do remember a picture of you with a large clock around your neck that that might be tipping the balances slightly the other way. If we ever discover my Facebook page, if our audience ever discovers my Facebook page, they're going to be greeted by any number of very strange pictures from the forgotten era that was me in college and in law school. I'd like to and you never know about it because you don't go on Facebook. Yeah, it's really the best of both worlds. They'll be entertained that I won't suffer the shame of it. <laughs> Perfect. But to introduce our uh, author for the evening, we have Sir Terence David John Bratchett. Uh, he of, well, the pinnacle of kind of fantasy comic works. He's most famous for the Discworld series, which over a 30-plus th uh, year period, he wrote 41 novels and innumerable short stories in it. And at least, 
in the world of fantasy, and particularly in, uh, over in the UK, he is very much regarded as one of the quintessential writers. I mean, there was a period there of where he was basically the best-selling writer right behind J.K. Rowling. He did sell something like 85 million books. So, oh, he... And, and had quite a number of video games. There's a, uh, one of his uh, computer games, the first Discworld computer game, apparently borrowed heavily from Guards Guards in terms of the plot and, and really? you know, the things. Yeah. Um, I would not try and play it. <laughs> it's a bit more and archaic it's, era. It's a 1995 point-and-click adventure game. Oh, that was a rough era of video games. Yes, Macintosh, and apparently PlayStation. Oh my god, I just can't imagine, like, an original PlayStation and trying to navigate shit. That, that, that has got to be, like, one of the goofiest things. And I've been playing games since 1992, going back and playing through a few of them. A few still hold up, but most of the adventure games of that era just don't live in a post-like Mass effect kind of world. Yeah, I think that one of the few styles of games that actually kind of holds up is text-based. Text but other than that, I mean, even Doom, which I know is, is your... Uh, it still you know, works. Suckling at your father's teeth, you know, is... <laughs> What you grew up on, but... It's an, exa- it's an example of either great or questionable parenting, and some of my earliest memories are sitting in my dad's lap, hammering the control button to fire the double-barrel shotgun into imps' mouths. You know, I, I, I look back on it fondly. Other people might look back on it as an example of child abuse, but, you know, it's, it's really in the eye of the beholder there, I think. One of the things that, that we've talked about and we've mentioned and something that goes along very much with with him and other authors is prolific, but when comparing him to to some of the other people that we may end up reading or or have already read, it is kind of a shame that that you know probably like fifty or so novels is like well he did okay. We're going to address some really interesting extremes with the uh, prolificness in this series. I mean, we're going to address writers which have been tortured to even get out a single book. And we're going to address writers like, say, Asimov last time around that could never stop writing if you chained their arms to the ground. Yes. Oh, very much so. So there are some that are just, you know, at home best when they're churning away. And I think, honestly, I think Terry Pratchett is a fairly good example of prolific in in one area. And, and the thing that he's good at and the thing that he's good at, he did well and he did consistently. And what would be the thing that he was good at, BJ? Bad quotes and references. Uh, <laughs> weird yeah, I was, I mean, I had never read any Terry Pratchett before, and it, I was honestly surprised by the sheer number of movie references that were buried in this thing. I, I, I would say buried is a little bit hard. On you the, know, on, okay. a, a diamond in the rough, there has to be some rough for you to like dig through to find it. Sometimes, like if it's jabbing through your shoe when you're walking around, it's not really hidden. Yeah, I would, I would say it's more of a shallow grave style of buried. You know, off the beaten road, didn't really have a tarp, let's put some pine needles on him, he'll rot before anyone finds him kind of buried. I mean, yeah. he, there, there are various scenes that we'll discuss of where he's essentially word for word quoting Dirty Harry, but in a fantasy setting. Yeah. You, you read my notes, didn't you, Spencer? Yeah, I mean, there's one I liked because I, I didn't bother to look up the Latin until afterwards, but we'll get, we'll get to that eventually later. But 
to introduce the book itself, we uh, today went through Guards, Guards, which is actually the, I think, was it eighth book in the series? But, yeah, it was something like that. It was fairly far into the Discworld series. But it's the first to address what's viewed as one of the most popular of the subplots, the sub-series that make up the longer 41-book series, following the Night Watch, which is essentially, an, an, well, we'll, go, we'll go through it, an organization that has been maybe integral in the history of the city that they're in, but has now been forgotten or at least left as obsolete due to recent changes to the legal code. But we will that get... about right. And so so I also feel like we haven't finished addressing Terry Pratchett no, before please. you what, get what? too far in. Um, he, he might be one of the few authors, but we'll, we'll see, you know, what we end up reading that, that has passed away. Um, and I believe it was Gaiman, but I'm not 100% sure. There's another author that was helping him out because I think he had... Alzheimer's. He did. He, and, and so, yes, he did. I see it now. Um, and, and so I think it was Pr- Terry Pratchett, not Terry Pratchett, uh, Neil Gaiman and, and maybe somebody else that, that kind of helped him towards his later days to finish some of his novels and, and help him get uh, some things out, which might have been why um, the collaboration with Good Omens happened. Yeah, it's really rather tragic. I mean, he died at something like, six, I think it was 66 or 67 years old, but it's been suffering from early onset Alzheimer's for several years beforehand, which I'm sure made it very difficult in his last few years to churn out the books that he so much enjoyed writing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, sort of sort of a shame, and, and you know, it's it'd be lovely to have uh, a little bit more of his an online presence from him in terms of like his, the Discworld, and he did have a lot of video games and stuff like that. But you know, there isn't the same fan interaction. I feel like that that other current authors have, um, and you know, it'd be sort of wonderful to ask him some questions about like his whole Discworld series and and things like that. Yeah, I feel like he's in some ways of that generation of fantasy that was just before the recent massive fantasy boom. I mean, he, he kept on writing through, like, 2015, but in many ways his heyday was he really rose to prominence in the literary field just before the insaneness that is the post-Harry Potter Game of Thrones kind of world is. Yeah, was and, it? you know, it's kind of unfortunate but that, that we don't have him around. But we do have the next best thing. Which would be what? Which would be another Terry. Oh, dear Christ, what the hell just happened? The surprises that you guys throw me at 9 o'clock at night on the East Coast. And miracle of miracles, magic of magic, without any delay, without any technical difficulties, by the will of the gods, we have before us another member of our call. How's it going, man? Spencer, how are you, buddy? The prodigal son returns. Sir, it has been too long. That's right, everybody. Lee is on the podcast. Uh, BJ erroneously called me Terry earlier. Don't Google Terry. You're, you're, that's not my name. My name is Lee. What's up, everybody? Doing well. Though you know, we were all under the assumption that you despised reading at a kind of mortal level and had pretty much sworn never to participate in this podcast. What changed? Well, I listened to one, and I figure <laughs> I needed to increase the quality. So uh, I'm here. I'm here for the funnies. I'm here for the entertainment. But no, seriously, uh, I did not read this book. Sorry, BJ. I read 40 Kindle pages of it. <clears throat> 
And then I read the Wikipedia. So I hope that's okay. I hope I can still participate. Yeah, I, I, that is actually perfect because I, I was just telling Spencer how uh, you were like, dude, like I, I kind of want to get on. I think it'd be a lot of fun. And I was like, all right, cool. Like let, let, let's have you on. Here's the book. And then a day or two later, it's just like, what? What book did you just fucking choose to read? What what is this? It, this? This is gonna be a very interesting discussion because Bridget and I adored this. We actually had a lot of fun reading it together as we were as we were preparing for the podcast. So wait, did you like read it to you read each it together? other like, out loud? Did you, did you read it in, like nighttime stories, or were you guys taking different voices, or was it? Like, all right, Bridget, like, tell me when you're done with the page so I can turn it. I, I, I don't know how you guys do your relationships, but a key aspect of ours is as I'm tucking Bridget in at night, I will read her stories in a variety of voices. And this book was ideal for that purpose. Oh, my God. Spencer, you realize it's going to go out in the world. Like, like, back up with the personal details here. I'm not hiding this. I, I think this is just a fun thing that we've done. Well, we did all, we did, we actually did all of Dunkin' Egg this way. Will you read to me if I call you at night, Spencer? If you'd like me to read to you at night, I will summon like these six or seven accents that I can put together to different characters, and I will read to you. Yes, I can guarantee that. Uh, okay, great, but just don't read this book. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, so not this one. So actually, we, we, we are right now starting a new podcast. It's called uh, Spencer Reads You to Sleep. I, I, I guarantee oh I will be successful in that regard. Maybe not how we intend it with the title, or possibly. Who knows? No, no law briefs, though I have Aww. no idea I got that term because they're anything but. We were talking about guards, guards. We got a little bit off kilter based on the fact that I'm apparently the only one that's going to enjoy talking about it for this particular podcast. But the book itself is, again, the eighth book in the Discworld series. And it was interesting reading it, uh, BJ and, I, BJ and uh, Lee can talk about, in that we kind of jumped right in the middle of the series. It's a recommended starting point because it follows one of the most popular of the subseries. But catching up to speed was not always easy in knowing, for example, what the hell the Discworld was, or what the city of Ankh-Morpork was. We kind of had to just play catch up and play along as we went. Yeah, it, it, it was an interesting way to go. Um, I, I guess I've heard a lot about the Discworld before this, so I kind of knew that I was getting into like a fantasy world that was a little bit funky, a little bit, shall we say, humorous. Um, and I guess for me, it, it fell a little short on the humor. I feel like having read this and apparently only this and Terry Pratchett's work so far, and, and I will make forays into it again, probably. Um, I kind of feel like Terry Pratchett is trying to be as funny as Douglas Adams and just not, not hitting it. It, it, and uh, it, I definitely did get a Douglas Adams vibe from it. It reminded me of like a mix between Douglas Adams meets Monty Python when kind of intentionally trying to do a spoof satire. Bingo. Trying to intentionally do a spoof satire of everything from, say, Lord of the Rings to Shakespeare and maybe a bit of Sherlock Holmes and Dirty Harry. You know? It, yeah, I'm going to jump in here uh, because I did read 40 Kindle pages of this, so I feel qualified. Um, yeah, I mean, I felt like Monty Python needed to send Terry Pratchett like a cease and desist. Like, it felt like the exact same genre, the exact same, like, the whole thing. I was like, oh my, this is just a cop. So, so I don't know if you got far enough into it to get to your first footnote, but all of the footnotes were very similar to another book that, that Lee, you, you 
may at some point want to uh, take up. What, Hitchhiker's Guide? Oh, I have read that, yeah. Oh, okay, so so the footnotes are hilarious. You know, that that's what kind of makes the book is is his really pithy footnotes that that are you know you you read it at the bottom of the page or whatever and it's really funny here it was i i think it's kind of like this old guy that's sitting in the corner of a bar and you know listening in on people's conversations he's like you know it's really funny and 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 then drops like a two two line sentence and and everyone's like all right well that was creepy uh We'll buy him more beer if he doesn't talk to us anymore. So kind of like what my role is in this podcast? <laughs> very, very much so, yes. I mean, I feel like in some ways, Douglas Adams, his, his footnotes and his commentary was on the absurdity of mankind in the universe. Project is more focused on the absurdity of the fantasy setting, of where most of what he's trying to riff, most of what he's trying to satire is the very common fantasy tropes that so many books, particularly Lord of the Rings, are fundamentally based around that upon any degree of careful reflection don't make much practical sense. Everything from the various conditions, well, the various descriptions upon which the dwarvish race are built to how a uh, lost wayward king could possibly still exist or possibly even still be relevant after thousands of years of genetic dilution. With that narrowed lens, with that narrowed focus, I appreciated what it did. It's an an effective spoof of so many of the the, fantasy tropes upon which the entire genre is built, while at the same time, I thought telling a pretty interesting and funny story. I mean, Spencer? I, yeah. Do you like the, uh, I, I hate to call them B-movies, because they're really not up to this quality, but the summer oh. C-movies that that sort of poke fun at different genres. Um, I think Scary Movie was one. I feel like there were, there were a couple of action ones that seem to come out like Ooh. once a summer, and it's just one of those things that the... Uh, trailer for it contains probably like 90% of like the things worth watching. Actually, Scary Movie was re- reasonably funny. Um, there was another spoof. Anyway, but you actually go watch it and it's just like, why Why did I waste my time doing such a thing? This is the spoof. You know, I could have read, you know, the tail line and the dust cover and, and completely covered everything funny in this entire thing. And now I've just wasted a portion of my life. And I, I would say the difference ultimately between a spoof and a satire is whether it tells a successful story in its own right. And I think that's where this crosses the line between a spoof and a satire, and that it actually has its own tale, it actually has its own characters, it actually has its own world, and operates a story in it. The spoofing, okay. the spoofing is secondary to that intent. The spoof is built entirely around, this is what we want to riff on. It has no real story of, a, of its own other than mocking an existing one. A satire takes its own story and spoofs as it goes. Okay, so so we. Well, act- I would like to jump in though. Uh, I'd like to jump in here, BJ, because Scary Movie was actually really good. Yeah, I, I said that. I said that. <laughs> scary Movie was. That good. was a quality. You're in my wheelhouse now. That was a quality movie. The scene where he's like, he's in. Do you know where I am? I'm like, yeah, you're in the closet. Come on, cinematic glory. That was great. It, yes. So, so that, that, that's why I tried to correct myself as I was going. Cause, cause that, that was the one spoof that I could think of that I actually watched and it was good, but there are other, there was a spoof on 300 like action movies, a couple, probably like five years ago now, because I don't keep up with anything cause I'm old now, but yeah, that was you know, there, there are loads of spoofs that, that there's a spoof on twilight and like, you know, 
that you're just going to waste your life if you go and, and, and watch that movie. But yeah, Scary Movie was, was a surprisingly good movie. Yeah, I would, yeah, but I agree with Spencer's Spencer's take on the difference between satire and a spoof, and I think that's a that's a pretty clear line for me, right? I think you can pretty much tell when you're reading, you're looking at a product, whatever it is. You're like, you, if you're in spoof territory, it's there's there's no real through line, there's no plot. Yeah. So, you know, would you say that some a book that said, "Now I don't know what you're thinking," Vimes went on softly. You're wondering, after all this excitement, has it got any flame left? And you know. I ain't so sure myself. What you've got to ask yourself is, am I feeling lucky? Well, are you? Does that fall into the spoof category or satire category? I'd say that, I'd say at times the book plays a bit of hopscotch with that line, and the author's um, persistent love affair with the character Dirty Harry maybe falls a bit too heavily inside of spoof. I mean, even the words that are hammered in above the... Um, uh, the Night Watch's headquarters are Fabricate Diem PVNC, which is gibberish, but could be translated to mean Make My Day PVNC Punk. So the author clearly maybe watched some of the Dirty Harry movies before he was writing this or while he was watching this and kind of built vimes around the character. So there's definitely... Well, sort of, and also not at all. And so, so I think one other quote from the book kind of sums up his ideal, which is the reason that cliches become cliches is that they are the hammers and screwdrivers in the toolbox of communication. I thought that was a good quote. I think it's a great quote, but Terry Pratchett went into his toolbox and was like, ooh, hammers and screwdrivers, how about I get the sledgehammer because that'll get my point across. I don't think he was trying to make a point with that. I don't think he was doing a commentary on Dirty Harry and what, uh, what was it? what was the name of that character? Uh, Cal- Harry Callaghan, I think, was the name of the actual character in this, in, in the those, in those movies. I don't think he was commenting on what that what role that character as a law enforcement officer would have in a fantasy setting. I think he was just trying to just be silly. Uh, yes, I, he's just trying to be silly. I I guess I agree with that. But but the peppering of of famous lines, and I, it, it took me out of the story, honestly. And I can understand that. For me, there's a certain degree to which, as long as the story itself presides, <laughs> a... what's up, man? Well, I just It's funny to me that that's what took him out of the story. <laughs> you made it 40 pages <laughs> in. Like you didn't have a story to get into yet. Yeah, it doesn't matter, man. The unreliable narrator, the the sort of nutty plot, the yeah, I mean, you're going to be out of it from page one. Kindle page one at that. <laughs> All right. We originally were planning on doing a plot summary for this episode. Is it still worthwhile to do so, or would you guys prefer to skip oh. on to straight commentary? No, no, no. Let, let's let's go through Not the yet. plot. Okay. We'll go through the plot. Yeah, I'll learn something. I'm sure there will be color commentary throughout this as I try to describe it. Can I tell a quick story before you get going? Uh, okay. Please. <laughs> I would just like to point out that I'm like Jordan with the flu game right now, because today... You do not bring um, your NBA into this podcast, sir. I went to the bathroom today, um, listeners, uh, and I stood up and threw my back out. So right now I'm pretty much laying on the floor. I can't really move, but I'm still doing this podcast. That just shows my love for you guys. I think it also shows our respective age of when I'm just – my first thought upon hearing you throw out your back while going to the bathroom is, oh, but for the grace of God, there go I. 
Okay, so, so the last <laughs> I know. thing that we... went through my head was, I thought I'm the oldest here. What is wrong with you people? <laughs> You've actually maintained a consistent well, I mean, workout regime for like that... a decade, though. Yeah, I mean, you both know that I'm an athlete guy. I've been a big athlete my whole life, so this is a real surprise to me. It's a real wake-up call. I mean, just the, you know, those knee injuries and hip injuries have kept you from, from doing those marathons, so... What can you do? And I'd like to say... All right, sorry to derail you, Spencer. No, and I'd also like to say my persistent career of Ultimate Frisbee has not kept me as fit as I would hope for. But, you know, there's still the future. Anyway, our book concerns... Built very much around the city of Ankh-Morpork, and some of the original descriptions, original character insights go into that city itself. Which, from what we can deduce, is described as the largest city in Discworld, which is built upon a very interesting legal system. BJ... What can you tell us in just brief terms is the law of this city at this present time? Oh, the, the law of this city? The law of this city is, is whatever makes it work. Um, the uh, patrician, I believe, of the city basically has, has made sort of pretty much everything legal, but people are responsible for you know, things that are in their purvey. So so the Thieves Guild is responsible for all the thieving that goes on in the city. And so as long as they keep it sort of within, you know, what, what the guild deems, or, or within the guild's uh, control, then it's sort of okay and it gets taxed and things like that. The Assassin's Guild is the same and, and the Beggar's Guild is, is the same, that everything is, you know, within bounds, but hilariously regulated and needs to report to the patrician and and make sure that you know they're sort of all following the vague rules of having a city that doesn't just completely fall apart and so we've completely gotten rid of essentially all crime because crime is legal but within very sort of narrow guidelines which, which is just the ultimate politician way of getting rid of crime. It's just that, you know, we've got a crime problem in the city. Let's basically just get rid of the definition of crime, and therefore we have no crime problem anymore. It also kind of reminds me almost like a, a true capitalist utopia of where essentially all industry, from crime to assassination to every, well, from thievery, assassination, everything in between, is all self-regulated. To they, they, have, they have to follow certain set guidelines from above, but otherwise... They're tasked with essentially enforcing their set area of industry. If someone assassinates outside the Assassin's Guild, the Assassin's Guild is responsible for regulating that and fixing that problem. If someone thieves without permission and against the existing quota, the Thieves Guild wipes them out of the, of the equation. It is, from that perspective, kind of like the ultimate capitalist ideal. of Industry can just be industry and continue as it will. But... The entire system hinges on the patrician himself, Lord Vetinari, because as he set the system up in a city that was rapidly descending into chaos, he gave them a solution. He gave these industries a way to come out of the darkness, to be able to operate openly, and effectively minimized crime on that basis. As I th- uh, as, as one point hilariously puts it, the Night's Watch or the City Watch to reduce crime have to work harder. The Thieves Guild just has to work less. The trick in this equation, though, is that for them to come out publicly, now Lord Vetinari knows them all by name. He knows their families. He knows where they live. He knows where they go about their days and eat their breakfast. And so while they are free to operate within the limits he sets, they are very much the limits he sets, and there is no question about who runs the city of Ankh-Morpork. 
Sure, sort of. But but basically, the runny of Ankh Morpork is is the old English lady over a tea that's judging you. So Spencer, I feel like you you have a great love for for the patrician because basically he controls everybody by being super judgy and basically a little old lady that's in everybody's business and it's like oh well you went over your quotas and that 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 just won't do yeah but um, but when i tutted at you guys i didn't have the threat of death upon you everyone is legitimately afraid of this guy despite the fact he spends most of the novel sitting around and reading they clear, he clearly is capable of any numbers of violence or threats or intimidation, though we really don't see it actively portrayed. We just see people react in fear of him. I, I, I guess. I mean, you know, people are sort of are afraid, and, and I feel like this is one of those things which is very British, which is, you know, when somebody cuts in the queue and everybody like looks at them funny and they're like, Oh, I was shamed out of line once I did something that went against, you know, the, the public's desire. And it's like, yeah, well, people looked at him and I feel like, you know, some, some, uh, some dude from Florida would just be like, okay, everybody's looking at me. I don't care. Like I'm, I'm from, some dude from Florida. In- interesting. Some dude from Florida. Interesting. You chose that state. So I was referencing Florida, man. But it, it happens to be that the, the Spencer ch- chose, out of all 50 states, his favorite state to be in is Florida. The, the things I do for love, sir. Baby, don't hurt me no more. Um, <laughs> but I, I, would offer, <laughs> I, I, I would offer an alternative to that, though, is that at one point our main character, Vimes, or arguably our main character of the story, Captain Vimes of the Night Watch, talks about how he's stared down a dragon three times in this and it's one to do it again four if he counts telling telling lord vetinari to shut up so whatever he has done mostly off camera he has success, successfully intimidated the entire population while at the same time essentially fostering every single plot that's against him so that he can control its direction but basically all this background leads to the conclusion that our main characters of this story are indeed an element of the police force the night watch in a city which is essentially defined crime as no longer existing, or at the very least is self-regulating and controlling. So essentially our main characters have no purpose at all other than to exist for continuity and nostalgia's sake. And, and I, I think in name, so so actually I would say that there are two police forces. There's the, the Night's Watch and then the Palace Guard. Three. The City Watch exists too, but same idea. Okay. The Day Watch. Uh, the Day Watch. Right. So... We essentially have two groups of characters and then just sort of like essentially random people. Um, so we, we have the Night Watch, which Captain Vines leads and all of two and then a third person. And then we have the, I am very remiss in, in my duties because I didn't take notes on this. It's either the People's Judean Front or the People's Front of Judea. <laughs> We're we're drawing uh, from Monty Python throughout this episode, clearly. Yeah, so so there are, um there, there is a scene where basically the supreme grand master goes between like five or six places and tries to find his secret brotherhood that's doing whatever, whatever, and and then at some point we're told what the name of that crazy secret brotherhood is, and I promptly forgot because it doesn't matter at all to the book. The unique and supreme lodge of the elucidated brethren of the even night, if we're concerned with details. 
Yeah, that was in my notes too. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, Spencer, you should get that tattooed on your arm. Just, just that, that I, I think that that typifies your. I love details so much that I honestly took notes on the, you know, the the one line that it says it, and basically, you know, doesn't say it again for the entire book because not even Terry Pratchett thought that it mattered. <laughs> I co-signed that. It comes up a couple times, and and honestly, with that long of a thing, I might need to work out a little bit to have enough arm to write it on. But as you talk about, this story is very interestingly structured in the sense that there are no real chapter breaks, which made it a bit of a bitch to read through. Um, And a lot of our characters are pretty much in their own little separate orbits until they get smooshed together. Oh, yes. Hmm? Very much so. So so I actually do take notes for 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 this podcast and and for the the past couple of uh episodes i have basically made a list of the characters and and as i encountered new characters i added them to the list and then i realized how foolish it was because there are people that you meet that seem like oh these people are going to play an important role in the story and then you never see them again and I don't know if that's because we're on book eight or because Terry Pratchett just doesn't care. Yeah, I think. Hey, I'll, can I jump in, please? It's it's Sir Terry Pratchett. That's true. This is no. This is a member of the Order of the British Empire. Let's be. Let's have respect. We Say just, what you will about the man. He is a knight. You just want to hear Sir Terry as much as you can. <laughs> Lee, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let's. We've set a bit of the background for what this city is. Again, our main characters have essentially been reduced to irrelevance other than for the sake of appearances, because you can't have a city without a police force even when the police force has no legal responsibilities other than to walk around at night, say all is well and ring a bell, and if all is not well, to go somewhere else and find where it is well to ring their bell. But... So much so that, that literally when one of our characters says, all right, what should I do... And he's taken around to to be like, all right, this is what you do. You say all is well. And he's like, wait a minute. What if all isn't well? You say all is well because that's our job. It's good to have a job to make a living. There have definitely been days where I felt like I'm just ringing a bell at night. But I think that other character you just referenced is really kind of the catalyst which drives our story. So it's worth introducing him pretty early on. That other character is Carrot... Iron Founderson? Did I get that right, BJ? Uh, I did not take down his last name, uh, which is a, I'm about yep, that's right. This. Basically, he's he's the adopted son of like the head dwarf of some you know dwarven colony, and maybe we'll get to it towards the end of this uh, episode. But we find out a little bit more about possibly his uh, past. Yeah. At that point, honestly, I so I don't know if Terry Pratchett's familiar with Carrot Top after he uh, took Sir a bunch Terry of steroids and and Sir Terry. Uh, I I don't know if Sir Terry is familiar with Carrot Top after he took a bunch <laughs> of steroids and got jacked, but I kind of feel like he wrote the jacked Carrot Top into a book. I I, I did not give any get many Carrot Top vibes because I don't. I find Carrot Top a lot more annoying than I do Carrot the character. Yeah, timeline doesn't check out. Check out there. This is this book was published in what 1989. Uh, yeah, it was. That's about right. All over the Wikipedia page. Oh yeah, so so it's probably the other way around. So uh, Carrot Top was just like, oh, somebody mentioned something like me. I'm gonna get Jack too. Cool. Yeah, good call. 
Carrot himself, as said, is the adopted son of a dwarven family, even dwarven royal family to a certain degree, who, having been raised as a baby, has no concept of himself as being anything other than a dwarf, until the fact that he's 6'6", six, six, jacked, and as human as all get out, really becomes impossible to hide anymore. And as well as the fact that he's having a continued flirtation with a... Uh, Overly young dwarf lass in a neighboring mine. Overly young in the sense I think that she was 70, but dwarves age at a different rate than humans do. So his family decides that they need to find another job for him. And upon getting advice from a local human, they decide that the best and most honorable thing that can be done with him is to send him off to become a member of the Night Watch, based on information which at this point is about a couple centuries old. But for a dwarf, that's just another Tuesday. Yeah. Yeah, from that, from that perspective, that's very recent events. And so they successfully, they send off a letter. They get a uh, letter of approval back in the mail. I actually enjoy them writing the letter, uh, the, the line about having to send off for advice and how to stop spelling certain words tickled me. Um, but they send him off to uh, the city of Ankh-Morpork now, uh, with him armed with nothing more than the sword they found him with, the most unmagical blade they've ever encountered, which... I think it kind of serves as a false red herring over the course of the book because it never really comes up despite the fact that they address that line about four times. Um, but they send him off to the city armed with nothing more than a sword and the guides of the laws of the cities of Ankh and Morpork, which gives you a hint of how old these laws actually are, to become a member of the Night Watch. And, and, and interestingly enough, his book is referenced way more than his sword. His book actually plays a key role in his job as a member of the, of the Night Watch over the course of the series, and that Carrot, as a dutiful dwarf by training and by education, has no concept of being other than the best that he can be in any task and goal that's set for him. And so he proceeds to essentially memorize and read all of the laws and have absolute determination in enforcing them once he arrives in the city. In a city so that no longer... So best to research his job to the letter... And then, against better judgment, does so and quotes it. Hmm. So you have a soft spot in your heart for Carrot, Spencer. Uh, in many ways, and I think you're getting a bit to the heart of the matter. Yes. Okay. Sick, sick burn, BJ. There's no, there's no burn there. This is a person to celebrate. He actually cares about his job and does it well. And as seen, despite the Ill utter lack of logic behind it, despite the fact that he's literally enforcing laws that are hundreds of years old, he has a certain natural charisma and ability about him that essentially allow him to defy every single obstacle that he comes across in the course of carrying out his duties. Yeah, I will say that in the 40 pages uh, of the Kindle book that I read, the, the parts with Carrot were the basically the only parts that didn't make me want to throw my iPad in the ocean. Uh, I did like the Carrot character. Okay, let's hear about why you like the Carrot character, because maybe the one bit of positive review I get out of you two over the course of this episode. Uh, I could understand what was happening. Good start. Um, I understand. I understand who he was. His name wasn't obnoxiously long, and he reminded me a little bit of Dunk. You you referenced the Dunkin' Egg uh, books earlier, but he reminded reminded me a little bit of Dunk. There is definitely a Dunk vibe about him. I'm very much willing to believe that George R. R. Martin drew a certain degree of inspiration from this character when he was creating Dunk. And I highly recommend you get like a paperweight or something like that. It's much easier to read on than an iPad. <laughs> As discussed, Carrot arrives in a city which has no laws and is determined to enforce them. 
And despite every obstacle in front of him, he proceeds to go about rather successfully doing that, from breaking up a ma from breaking up a dwarf bar by essentially shaming them into thinking about their poor Jewish mothers living across the ocean that they really need to be thinking about and trying to uphold the values of, to walking into a bar essentially of assassins and so utterly destroying them that his only comments afterwards are to complain that another officer of the watch isn't showing him how the ropes are in the city. So while he's proceeding to kick ass and take names... The elucidated brethren, operating in what is their own relatively separate sphere at the time, have essentially a plot to overthrow the carefully balanced rule that the patrician has set in the city. BJ, what can you tell us about this plot that the elucidated well, I would say plot is going a little bit far. I mean, maybe the supreme grandmaster um, has, has a plot, but for the most part, this sort of seems like a gaggle of... Um, for lack of a better term, neckbeards. Um, you know, <laughs> I don't think that's fair. Good one, BJ. Uh, but you know that there there are a handful of, of of these guys that sort of show up to uh, a small dingy uh, room in in a warehouse district and and don't seem to be able to do anything particularly correctly. Um, but there's this uh, shadowy brotherhood that basically uh, hatches this plot, or at least the Grandmaster hatches this plot, to use a book that he seems to have filched from the library, which will play an impressive role um, and somewhat disturbing role in the rest of the book, probably more than 40 pages into it, um, in summoning so I'm out. <laughs> You've read the Wikipedia. Um, you can keep up with us. Basically, this brotherhood summons a dragon, and doing so, they think that they will get a king of uh, mythical proportions to come out and defeat this dragon and take over from the patrician and deliver the city of Ankh-Morpach from the, I don't know, heathenism. I guess I never really understood the drive of the brotherhood other than when the reveal happens and you sort of find out who's leading the brotherhood. And even then it was kind of like, Oh, all right. Well, yeah, a, a lot of the brotherhood seems to be built in some ways on what we think Lord Vetinari, the patrician is capable of and what he knows. There's a lot of implication throughout the story that he kind of knows everything that he's got spies on every corner that is not that almost every plot and scheme against him is something that he himself has set up. And so it seems like in some ways that the supreme leader of the Seleucid Brethren has very purposely picked those of the lowest possible skills and ambitions to be members of his elite little club, possibly with the goal of being under the suspicion of the patrician, that they have no ambition, that their goals here in participating in this plot is to get back at the lady who runs the little rubbish stand at the end of the street. They aren't people that have any goals of going after the patrician. They aren't people which have any high-minded objectives on how to change the world. They're people with pettiness built into their very souls. And so possibly from the perspective of this guy, who as we later learn is a senior member of the administration, Lord Vetinari, he has purposely selected these individuals as his means of bringing about his end goals just because they wouldn't be the kinds of people that Lord Vetinari would actually be watching and caring about. And that... I I feel like reading a lot 
into what you want things to be, but fair enough. No, he straight up says that pretty early in the story, is that he purposely selected them because they are people of pettiness. They are people of very simple goals and ends that can be easily manipulated to his purposes and have no higher-minded goals. So I, I actually do remember that. Yes, but he didn't say anything about them being below the patrician's notice or anything like that. I think it's a re- I think it's a reasonable interpretation of it, particularly given what we know about the patrician and what we eventually learned about this particular individual, um, Lupine Wants, as we eventually determine him to be. Also, as, yeah. as for their objective, he frames this as that we're going to bring back the kings and they're going to make everything right, because that's enough to convince the rabble that it's a good plan. Just because the rabble is kind of built around the notion that, you know, kings will restore the world to how it should be, whatever that was, because none of us have any memory of what a king was actually like. As it was hundreds of years ago. From his perspective, though, he's purposely putting the quote-unquote king as not somebody that just randomly emerges due to the laws of the universe requiring a king to emerge in the scene. It's his nephew that he's stashed in a barn that he knows is nothing more than a pretty boy who will whip around a sword and be incredibly easy to manipulate. It seems pretty clear that he's framing this as just a means for him to take power and is using the king, as a, the king and the dragons as merely a means to that end. As, as I do in every episode, um, I'm going to throw a little shade on, on our, our friend George R.R. Uh, please do. We don't get enough of that. Oh, boy. So, I'm back so in it. He's like a little finger. So he has all these grand plans in the very early part of the book, and he just sort of fades off into, I, I don't even know what, a, a sad retirement towards the end of the book and, and is completely impotent. I would well, say... Key that, word there, it, sorry, key word there is you said book. So we really don't know with George R. R. Martin. That's true. <laughs> we will someday see the end of the series, hopefully not just purely through the screen. Um... But as for this story, the, inter- the the dragon plot of them bringing a dragon to the city to sow chaos so that the king, as is, would be true in every single myth riding into the save the day, can be part of their overall strategy to overthrow the patrician and restore proper regal rule to Aunt Morpork. That starts to cross into the other plot we just talked about with the Night Watch, as, as the Night Watch is starting to get kind of a little bit fond of Carrot, well, fond, confused, and terrified of him, if they're never sure whether to kind of just watch him die or go in and save him from his own stupidity, are all walking drunk down the street, they run into a bit of the aftermath of a dragon. In the sense that the dragon chooses to show up, emerging with the magic that these uh, elucidated brethren have used to bring it out of wherever all the dragons have gone, and obliterate all the assassins which have been stalking the Night Watch as they drunkenly stumbled down the wrong street. This imminent and direct exposure to a possible dragon kind of stills our main character out of what has been a depressed, drunken stupor for much of the last maybe decade that he's been in the Night Watch. As yeah, it, it seems like pretty much all of his life. And and I think it's around here that one of the early lines that I picked up on and, and I just I shook my head and I was a little disappointed Honestly, um, Which because was? this was an, another of his, I'm going to take a line from a movie that everybody knows, which was, of all the cities in all the world, it could have flown into mine, and it's flown into mine. Yeah, again, Casablanca. The, the, num- the number of Casablanca lines, the number of Dirty Harry lines are high. Those seem to be his two favorite ones to he references throughout the story. They're good movies. They are good movies. 
Um, but as a result of this exposure and as a result of, you know, Carrot then promptly trying to arrest the, the patrician for violating a basic traffic law, Vimes, who's finally got a bit of inspiration under his belt and at the same time has been essentially told by Lord Vetinari to not investigate it, which Lord Vetinari seems to realize is the best way to get Vimes to do anything, he decides to start investigating what he can about dragons, which leads him to our third, I'd say, character grouping, and she kind of deserves her own character grouping based on the descriptions of her essentially having her own orbit, is uh, the Lady Sybil Ramkin and her own covey of uh, swamp dragons that she raises outside of town. BJ, what can you tell us about the Lady Ramkin? Uh, the Lady Ramkin. So I would say that she sort of typifies uh, English gentry. Um, she's obviously a lady, as in her name, but but very much this you sort of get the sense of you know mucking about in the country, and she keeps a bunch of dragons and raises them and breeds them, and you very much think of um, dog breeding. Yeah. And, you know, these might not be Shih Tzus, but they're, you know, sort of the closest thing to, um, actually, uh, my girlfriend ended up reading this and, and sort of imagined a, a, uh, lady breeding horses or, or something like that, especially with their, uh, difficult and distinctive digestive systems. It's interesting to see where he mixes with both realism and commentary with describing this. As he said, she very much uh, is a, a picture of the idle rich. The, the one line, good line that Pratchett has in this is that only the rich have only the rich have the luxury at playing at being poor. And so, despite being arguably the most wealthy and powerful noble family in this, she has the luxury of just walking around dressed in rubber boots and breeches with a muumuu on. She sounds like Brooklyn to me. <laughs> there is an element of that. So, so funny enough, actually, that that's one of the things that Terry. Pratchett, Sir Terry, sorry, there you go. Uh, is often quoted, which is the uh, boot theory, um, which I guess didn't make it into this book. It's probably in one of the later no, Discworld books. It, it's in this one. Uh, oh, it is? Yeah, it is. It's Vimes' boot theory when he describes the idea that the poor inherently have to pay more in life in terms of having to buy more cheap boots, whereas oh, the, rich, the rich can afford... Yeah, the, wow, a point for Spencer. The rich can yeah. afford to buy one high-quality pair of boots that last for 10 years in the same period that the poor have to buy 10 separate sets of cheap boots. Are you sure it's in this one? I, yeah, pretty sure. Oh, man. I must have skimmed a lot more than I thought. <laughs> uh, Me and you both, BJ. <laughs> well, uh, one, one important thing to note as well about Lady Ramkin is in some ways she perhaps embodies a more realistic take of the nobility that hasn't been so far removed from what originally made them noble of where she is of a much more classical noble family, like the Anglo-Saxons that just landed and took over the land kind of noble family, in the sense that she is built like all various kinds of brick houses. She is descended from the warrior conquerors of this land and is very much a Valkyrie in mortal form, which the author takes no small amount of pleasure in describing that she is essentially a city or world or continent to herself. And... Over the course of this story, we see Bimes, who himself is described as having uh, been laid low by a lady, share an extensive 
flirtation of sorts with this uh, character as part of his investigation. A flirtation that is originally very one-sided in the sense that he has apparently no idea how to deal with women, particularly one that seems very interested in him. I would say very interested in him is is going a little bit far for this book, but he's clearly going to get railroaded and and, um, overtaken by this uh, presence... This force of presence, shall we say, um, and I, and I honestly think that that you're calling up a Valkyrie is is sort of very apt, and I sort of imagine like the Looney Tunes version of a Valkyrie, but I'm not sure if fat is quite the right word. I mean, she's just big, large and imposing. Yeah, Titanic, um, if you will, Titanic, so, if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think the the Futurama uh, Death by Snoo Snoo. Yeah, yeah a, a mix between that and the horse that Bugs Bunny rides in on what's Opera Doc. A combination of those two. Sick reference. Yeah, I try. Here we see kind of his first exposure into what dragons are, at least what dragons remain in the real world. And they're kind of a fun creature in the sense that they have no rational right to exist. That they are very much, as you said... They are very much, as you said, the breed dog of the animal world, and that they should have long since been eradicated by evolution were it not for man continuing to manipulate them. I, I imagine them somewhere between like a cross of pugs and, and you know, horses or rabbits or some other animal that just like tries to die the best it can. It's like, <laughs> I ate something slightly funny, I'm just going to kill over and die. And then, you know, the hilariously rich blonde lady is just like no 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 this is my treasured pet you know let me spend ten thousand dollars to make sure it lives like another three days bj you just described my experience owning chickens (laughs) how did your chickens survive the hurricane by the way and a bit of a non sequitur did everybody make it through okay so so spencer i need to take take up with you apparently the the vimes boot theory is in men at arms the play I the play? I know I've not ever read that. I don't know. That's what it's saying on the internet, and I don't remember reading it. So anyway, go ahead. Did you read Wikipedia like me, Spencer? I did not read Wikipedia like you. I've either read this separately before and have assigned it to the book, or it's buried in a couple different books. Controversy. Yeah. Anyway, uh, as said, he explores a bit of the dragon concept with them. The little swamp dragons, essentially being the pugs of the reptilian kingdom. And uh, thrown in with a certain element of exploding when they get excited or hungry or have indigestion or want to express happiness. Uh, they continue to exist because of Lady Ramkin's efforts to preserve them. And Vimes' relationship with her certainly begins at this point, with her flirting up a storm with him and him just trying to get the hell out of Dodge from his own discomfort in particular circumstances. I but, think railroaded would be the appropriate term for... I, I think he eventually develops a certain degree of admiration for her. I think, in many ways, the opening lines of the book from Vimes are him describing the city as a woman and being laid low by it. And the closing lines of Vimes are him talking about describing her as a city unto herself and him offering his first bit of return of affection towards her. So I thought that was an interesting tying of the book together from the first moment we met him to the last moment. Uh, the scheme on the part of the elucidated brethren rapidly starts to achieve a certain measure of success in the sense that there is very little that one can do about a dragon when it shows up to make mischief. And so when the dragon arrives in the central square and when their kingly figure arrives to do battle with it, 
and when upon a certain waving of the sword makes the dragon go away, the people of Akmor Pork, who are a very predictable sort and very prone to rally behind the first thing that waves around a pretty sword, promptly, without much fuss, put Lord Vetinari in his own dungeons and put a new king on the throne. that a roughly accurate description, BJ? Uh, yeah, I think that's about right, other than we've, we've skipped over a little bit, which is um, the, the dragon at least at this point, is basically the Supreme Grand Master Lupin wants, and he's basically creating a little terror for the city, for the city to, to rise up and basically call for the end of dragon terrorizing the city, and that's sort of how he's getting the city to rebel against the uh, patrician. Right, it's, it's worth noting that the way they've done this is that they stole a book from the, was it the Unseen uh, University or something along those yep. lines? The Unseen University, the library. Uh, and from, from under... By... Mm. Go ahead. Yeah, from under the nose of the sleeping librarian, who is uh, definitely not in any way or any shape and form a monkey. Uh, he is an orangutan yeah. and very proud of it. Was at one point a man, but seemingly everyone has just come around to the terms of the fact that he now communicates through Ook and is the best librarian that money could ever afford, and is capable of apparently transitioning between different dimensions in the course of carrying out his duties, but we'll get to that. Yes, and he says Ook a couple of times. And, True. And... But yes, he, he 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 spends a lot of time uh, on rooftops and and sort of swinging through areas of, of the library, um, and and we sort of have yet another perspective. Um, and I know I know uh, Lee was not super happy with the jumping around perspective, but essentially we have uh, the librarian, Captain Vimes, Carrot. Um, I believe the patrician briefly when he's in his cell, yeah. Um, and uh, a bit of wants even we get a little, little bit of lupine wants at various moments too. Yeah, and 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 the lady as well. And, I would say uh, that Vimes, along with each member of the Night Watch, we definitely get some perspective yeah. from Colwyn to a certain degree as well too, the yeah. sergeant of the and, Night Watch, and so. Not only do we have an unreliable narr narrator, but we don't have a consistent narrator. Yeah, it's hard to say clearly who would you say is the main character of the story. I guess it would be Vimes. Most seems to revolve around him to a certain degree, but a lot of these guys have their own orbits, so it's hard to say that there's any really clear one linking point other than there is a dragon in the city and here's how everyone responds to it. The plot, I would say essentially sparse as it is, um, is, is told by enough points of view that it fills up an entire novel. Indeed, indeed. And, and as said, uh, returning to the dragon itself, they're conjuring a dragon essentially into the city through whatever incantation this book is responsible for, which doesn't appear to require as much uh, holy mumbling as the various members of this unseen brethren would like to, would like, elucidated brethren would like to do, but mostly just requires saying a few key words and digesting magical objects. So as to kind of break the barrier between this world and wherever it is exactly the dragons went when the magic went with them. Yes, the the uh, dragon dimension. Hmm. Yeah, sounds sounds pretty familiar, Spencer. Uh, yes, to a certain degree, doesn't it? Um, bear in mind, this came out first. Uh, but... <laughs> As said, their plot comes to a certain degree of fruition. The nephew of Lupine Wants, the Supreme Grandmaster, successfully takes the throne. Lord Vetinari, with nothing more than a smile and not a bit of fuss, calmly is escorted away and locked in his own dungeons. 
and a new king sits the throne, despite the, there being very little history of kings or anybody really having... <laughs> Several people raise practical questions about why is essentially the coronation already planned? Why do they already have all the, all, all the banners printed? Why is the City Watch already informed about where the parade route's going to occur? But what, what, what do the banners look like? How do we make them? Yeah. All of the nitty-gritty details that just sort of seem to show up in, in movies, and, and you sort of sometimes question them, and, and they actually do here. Yeah, and uh, a few people do raise the practical question about, okay, this is, you know, an exiled king, the descendant of uh, long generations of royalty. They've been gone like a thousand years. Aren't we all basically about the same amount of kingliness based on that degree of genetic dilution? But Spencer, did you know that the tarts, that that watery tarts distributing swords is not a useful form of government? It, he basically straight up quotes that line at one point in this, as the elucidated brethren are talking among themselves. <laughs> um. So, so I think the 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 other thing that that we briefly maybe mentioned, but that that Lupin wants is essentially taking control of this dragon up until the point that his nephew does take over. And then one, apparently Lupine Wants didn't chose to draw much from the fact that about the back half of the dragon summoning book had been burned to a crisp, uh, as the librarian kind of notes with just utter disdain, that dragons, particularly the noble dragons that Lady Sybil Ram can tell us a bit about, are not creatures that you tame, are not creatures that just bow to your will. They are kind of, in many ways, will-animated. And so, upon given a connection back into our world and essentially a portal to endless magic upon which to sustain themselves through the university, this noble dragon has decided that it's kind of been manipulated enough and is going to make its own impression upon the world. Yeah, it, it sort of found a, a great source of food and and all these lovely things that, that this... Uh, slightly bumbling character has has brought it into and it says huh well th this is a great place for me to to come and roost for a little while mm -hmm. and so it does uh, i must have read these chapter the well chapters the, these uh handful of pages right one right after the other but but it was just it sort of seemed that right as the nephew of the the grandmaster took over as king pretty much immediately you know, yeah right right after that this dragon goes oh hey there's all kinds of cool stuff that i want to eat over here and sustain myself i'm gonna come right in and right after the the coronation ceremony for for this nephew the dragon flies in and the nephew sort of goes Oh crap! That's a dragon, and now the dragon's king. Yeah, and I love the utter lack of transition about it. The book makes a good deal of the fact that Captain Vimes is very much proud of his city, is very much wanting to serve his people, but is continually frustrated by the fact that they are the most sheepy of all individuals he's ever had to deal with. Because uh, pretty much their response is, "Okay, the patrician's overthrown. There's a king now. Great, long live the king." Okay, the king's been literally eaten by a dragon, and the dragon's now sitting on a throne of gold that it's kind of piled for himself? Okay. Long, long, uh, a dragon, dragon king? King dragon? Dra I don't know. Dragon, dragon queen. Coronation, it's fine. Yay, new ruler. You know, honestly, he keeps the trains running on time. He's got a wonderful foreign policy plan. I love that that conversation actually happens in real time with Vimes watching as he sees them go through the logical puzzles of, we could never put up with a dragon. Honestly, and then like five minutes later, you know what? 
Dragon King isn't so bad. I think we can get behind this. I really kind of like his policy for dealing with Chinese trade issues. Yeah, it, it, it's great. Ooh. You know? Spencer. You know, I try. Uh, dragon. Okay, so we so, have a dragon so, on the throne. Yeah, so so we have this dragon, and it. it one of the things that I do have to give Sir Terry Pratchett uh, credit Good for work. is uh, that that he really does sort of capture a little bit of of the human essence, and he and he has Captain Vimes just like, oh, but but what about, you know, sacrificing a virgin to to the uh to the dragon? Don't they eat eat virgin uh virgin women? And and you know, the people will rise up and and sort of everyone else is like, Yeah, well, if you're not the virgin that it wants to eat, like what do you really care? Yeah. The, what the fuck? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Not that kind of eat. Not that kind of eat. We're having a different conversation here. Uh, okay, I'm good. Yeah, it's it's yeah. Sergeant, I think it was Sergeant Cohen that kind of tries to rally the people around this, and he kind of gets them on uh, on board at least in theory. At least gets a couple of them on board who have an over overabundance of daughters, and so a statistical probably uh, probable probability of being, suffering more than others. And then the dragon just shows up and solves the problem by just killing everybody who shows any degree of disdain. And then the conversation practically kind of stops once you again deal with the practical fact that, okay, we, you know, the, the Night Watch has successfully deduced what the problem is between the librarian and them. They know essentially who's causing it, but there's a dragon now, and other than trying to find a way to shoot it in the vulnerables, there's not much we can really do about this. Yeah, it, it's, um, as some might say, the elephant in the room. Yeah, and... While this is all going on, Vimes is thrown out of the night is thrown out of the night watch by Wants. He continues to investigate on his own. Most of the night watch is kind of left to their own affairs, is trying to deduce a way of dealing with this dragony problem. While at the same time, throughout this story, a particular little swamp dragon by the name of Errol has also become a bit of his own perspective character. As we see Errol, a very mutated, malformed swamp dragon, even among the standards of swamp dragons, spend a large portion of this story eating the oddest of things and appearing increasingly sick. He, he's the uh, most brachycephalic of the pugs of the dragons, and he seems to take a liking to uh, Captain Vimes, and, and so uh, the, the, the lovely lady, probably a little bit taken with Captain Vimes, gifts him this um, specimen of Swamp Dragon. And uh, he becomes the mascot of the Night's Watch and uh, makes himself at home in the uh, barracks of the Night's Watch and, as Spencer said, starts eating sort of everything that is laying around, like a kettle or the stove that keeps them warm or... You know, whatever else uh, isn't nailed down, and probably the nails too. And as we deduce, he starts to get a bit peckish about what he's choosing. He starts to only seem to eat things that are highly flammable. He starts eating all of their wood. He starts eating all of their lamp oil. He starts eating all of their grease and polish and anything else that has a certain degree of explosiveness attached to it. Which we don't really get why he's doing that, other than we've heard before from Lady Sybil Ramkin that these creatures, as a key part of surviving the fact that essentially they've got little explosive chemical factories in their guts, 
are capable of changing around their digestive systems at will to suit their environment and needs, particularly with respect to dueling other dragons. And so... Well, and sometimes sort of just die in the or, meantime. Or die. Or di- dying is the most common into that, into that equation. Right. You know, you know there, there, there are these hyper-evolved animals that, that adapt to their environment unless they die because of they're trying to adapt their, their environment. Yeah, the book makes a point, I think I was saying at one point, that essentially they've gone extinct in the wild and kind of just persist in noble lady collections, as one yeah. would expect with a creature that mostly spends its life dueling other dragons by seeing who explodes first, and then kind of just explodes in their own excitement after they've won the duel. I feel like the the comparison with the chihuahua is kind of uh, impressively on point. Oh, yeah. But- a chihuahua, it would be a much more entertaining chihuahua if it essentially, you know, leaked acid and farted fire. But, you know, that'd probably be, as, as seen in this book, rather hard to manage. Uh, but a lot of this is building to a certain degree of climax. If we're at one point in the story, we've got the Lady Sybil Rampkin has been taken prisoner, despite showing off the berserker that she is when need be. Uh, to be essentially the virgin sacrifice to the dragon. As the new dragon king has essentially set new policy in place, which... What was that, Lee? So what the fuck? This story's gotten weird. It, it, <laughs> is it Chihuahua shit and acid? And it, it, virgins are getting eaten it, by dragons? It's going to get remarkably weird here, even weirder here in a moment. Um, <laughs> but she... Well, well yeah, because like, you couldn't tell it coming from a, a, a mile away that, that oh... Well, we only have, you know, eight or ten characters that that, that we've uh, named, so... Who's who's our noble virgin? virgin? (laughs) Yeah, because the dragon demands virgins of a certain degree of quality and pedigree. It has to do with the taste, of course. And she, being the most noble equivalent to a princess in the entire city, is promptly selected. And, through a lucky quirk of events for those who try to uh, arrest her, knocks herself out and is hauled away to be chained to the one large stone they found in the entire city to complete the classic dragon myth. At the same time, Vimes has been thrown in prison with the, in the same cell as the patrician, where he's quickly deduced that the patrician, despite being locked in a jail cell, or maybe because he's been locked in a jail cell, is essentially still running the city. He's using little ratty spots... Mm. happy to be locked in the prison, and... Captain Vimes kind of questions, like, how are you so, like, chill about being locked in the prison that you built that seems completely inescapable? Um, But as he finds Lord Vetinari in his jail cell, he quickly deduces that Lord Vetinari is essentially still aware of everything that's happening in the city because in his time in the jail cell, he essentially trained an entire population of rats, rather intelligent rats, to bring him everything that he needs and provide him all the information he needs about the course of the city. It's left ambiguous about whether he trained them to a, and knew about them to a certain degree beforehand. But he's certainly making use of them now that he's in the cell. A cell, which I love some of his quotes about that, about never never build a jail cell that you wouldn't be willing to spend a few nights in. So it's actually rather cushy for him to a certain degree. And also never build a jail cell that you don't have the key to get out of, in the sense that the only impressive locked door to this jail cell is one that locks from his side and to which he has the sole key for that he's stashed in the cell. Yeah, this is sort of the, like, taking to the extreme, I'm not locked in here with you, (laughs) you're locked 
here with me yeah. as the, you know, the jail cell isn't the jail cell that's going to hold me back from taking over the city. It's going to, it's the jail cell that's going to protect me from all the insaneness that's out in the city. And it's like, all right, that's okay. Yeah. And I appreciate it. He, he is in many ways, the embodiment of a magnificent bastard in the most tropey of ways possible. And he does well with that. It leaves open many questions about what degree he may have even instigated this plot given several of his off-comment limes about how important Vimes is to what he plans and how much he knows how to manipulate Vimes for what purposes he needs him to accomplish. Um, yeah. But that, that's one thing that's building towards our climax. Another thing is, of course, that, uh, as said, the librarian has traveled through different dimensions of L space in the library so as to get a different copy of the book from a different period in time so that he can read both what the book says and also find out who took it so as to come back to the castle to find out who's responsible, and in the process, rescue Vimes from his prison cell. And also, apparently, sort of watch himself sleeping, because he was sleeping when the person that took it took it, so it's sort of like this, you know, nowhere near as well written or, or uh, explained as primer, but the, all right, we have a weird time loop, and it's totally going to work out in our plot's favor. But I, I do like that essentially there are three rules among the librarians. Silence, books must be returned no later than the last date shown, and do not meddle with the nature of causality. And honestly, first and third are kind of optional. But at least at this time, he decides not to mesh, not, not to mess with causality as he goes about his duties. But that kind of does two of our various stories that are heading for a climax. The third is the number of the Night's Watch have been kind of left on their own, given that Vimes has been fired and thrown in prison and everything else. And so, essentially, they decide that they are going to try to take down this dragon to the best of their abilities to fulfill their duty to the city, which the best well, plan... Sort of. and, and sort of keep up all of their other duties, they as do. it were, which essentially seems to be that, you know, the, the two other Night's Watch members, which we haven't quite mentioned yet, which are Nobby and Colin, mm -hmm. and honestly, God, like, his naming of characters frustrates me a little bit. It's like the old man in the corner. <laughs> I'm going to call one of my characters penis. And the other one, poop shoot. It's great. Yes. Uh, Go on. And, and, and so they, they sort of seem to be like, all right, well, I guess we're sort of thrust in a position of power. So we'll, what does Captain Vimes even do? I guess we'll try and keep up whatever he does. Oh God, this this dwarf carrot dude is is trying to actually impose some law that we have no idea about. And there's some different elements to it. I think it's a little bit unfair to describe either of them as being too static or one note of characters. They have a certain degree of depth to them. I mean, as we said, we actually see a certain degree a certain degree of perspective through Colin himself. And as we see at the end of the book, he's actually one of the few people that deduces who Carrot actually is. That, that's true. So so we do get a perspective of the characters, and we'll discuss that, you know, the characters a little bit later more episode. later episode. But, you know, very much we have sort of the Night's Watch sort of trying to soldier on, as it were, without their uh, captain at their helm. Mm -hmm. and, and they sort of try and continue in his search for who the dragon is, what the dragon is, and overthrowing the dragon. And they eventually decide that one of the best things that they can do is get on the roof of the night, uh, get on the roof of the Night Watch headquarters, arm themselves with a bow, uh, led by Colin, who apparently was quite a longbowman in his youth, 
and hit the dragon in whatever its vulnerables might be as it's flying slowly over. Because they make a good point of okay, the fact... So, so, wait, 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 wait. You say vulnerables like we don't know what it's trying to say. Well, they don't know what it's trying to say because they quickly deduce they've got no idea what a dragon's vulnerables are. And I'm yes. Sure... Oh, okay, so, so, so Terry, Sir Terry Pratchett spends many, many paragraphs trying to describe the vulnerables and doing his best not to say, we're going to shoot it in the balls. Which, admittedly... Sounds like you shoot the dragon in the dick. That's what it sounds like to me. Admittedly, if you're trying to deal with a scaly opponent, you do want to aim for some weakness along those lines. I mean, if you go to Tolkien, he said the underbelly of the dragon was the weak spot. Perhaps he just wasn't being specific enough about what part of the underbelly you actually want to aim for. It is is hitting a trope upon a trope about... Universally, the the underside of the dragon is described as the weak spot. Let's just focus on the weak spot within the weak spot. Though, as once they are up on the roof realizing this, they do quickly realize that they have no idea exactly what the vulnerables upon a dragon look like. And I'm spelling it, I'm pronouncing it vulnerables because they continually spell it with two O's for some reason. Yeah, uh, well, that, that sort of goes in line with, you know, Carrot's miss uh, spelling and pronunciation of quite a number of things. Yeah, it, but, I do. I do love his letters back home over the course of the books. I find those con- some uh, a lot of fun. You know, we reference tropes many times, and and I I feel like Sir Terry Pratchett is is one that does his best to poke fun at tropes, and I kind of feel like he spent his free time browsing the infinite gravity well that is TV tropes. I don't think it existed at the time. But he's like, well, you know, in all of the stories, these things happen when there are a million to one chance. And so, you know, what do you think the chances are of me shooting an arrow and hitting the dragon and the vulnerables? And it's like, well, it would probably be one to, you know, about 90,000, maybe, maybe not, you know, maybe 95,000. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not quite one in a million it's not quite un- as unlikely as that, but w- what if I did it standing on one foot? Well, that's like 927,351 to one, but again, not a million to one, so clearly that's not going to happen. It's interesting to see there are several moments of where the author makes a good point of demonstrating that the characters themselves are aware of the fact that they are in a fantasy universe which holds to fantasy universe rules. That the characters know that the gods are literally playing odds and dice with the universe, and so they know that the classic expressions have a certain degree of real-life meaning. That when the palace guards see that one hero-y character has arrived in front of them and is determined to get past them, they're actually more scared of the fact that it is one hero-y character because they know the trope that when one hero wants to get through them, no, no number of palace guards will stop him from doing so. He's clearly going to win. The palace guards don't actually do anything. Which, and, well, that's how Vimes ends up in prison. Which I do love that the original foreword to the book is dedicated to just those palace guards who die because the hero needs to get from point A to point B. And so that I, is I, the red shirts. I, I do like that literally the, those red shirts that inspired the book do make an appearance later on when Vimes has to try to get his way into the palace. Well, you know, in some cases they're white shirts. Yes, but, literally. <laughs> if you did not flip back in your Kindle book three pages, you missed probably the best part of the book, which is the dedication. Yeah. Um, and the dedication is to the, you know, the red shirts, the guards, you know, the, the disposable characters who, you know, 
30 minutes into the TV show or in chapter eight or whatever, the, the, the main evil character screams, guards, guards, the guards come rushing in, the main character immediately kills them all. Yeah, I did see that. I like that. And I can understand why that was written, because they are clearly an unsung demographic, an unsung character role in these course, these novels that really deserved a book unto themselves. And this book is dedicated very much to them, but is determined to not see them suffer the same fate. Mostly. Mostly, mostly. But because as seen here, they, despite the fact that they've literally got him standing on one leg, half blindfolded, aiming at something completely different so they can just make the one in a million shot work. Despite the fact he does actually get the arrow off and it does strike the dragon dead enough on that it does kind of react to it, it apparently was not the vulnerables, or maybe dragons don't have the certain vulnerables that the book has been building up for the last 80 pages. Or it may not have been exactly one, one million to one. Which is, I think what the book literally says, that it was one in 999,000 according to the gods basically being dicks that day. Yes. Um, which, which the book over, I think like five or six times the God, the book has brought up the idea of the gods setting the odds and playing dice. So in many ways it's consistent with the world that it's set for itself for the gods are kind of dicks and we're not really sure what game they're playing at, but maybe it has rules, but, and you know, maybe it's, they, but as a result of what they did, all kind of comes together at the same time. Vimes has been freed from his dungeon cell. He runs to the aid of Lady Sybil Ramkin, which Again, wait, one. Wait, what? wait, wait, wait! You're skipping over a great scene, which is you're skipping over the patrician saying, "I have the key to my cell, I... and I will escape when the time is right." And basically, escaping when the time is right and letting Vimes, you know, and Vimes is like railing against the prison and trying to like take apart the bars and things yeah. like that and and the patrician's like yeah he he kind of needs to like get out his his energy and and you know the way he thinks that things should run and and the typical you know hero of the story thing and then i'm just gonna unlock the door yeah I, li I like that he feels like it would be rude really to break his rhythm by jumping in and providing a solution to the problem that he's so desperate to solve on his own exactly but as said, Vimes charges in to save the day. Palace Guard knows widely to stay out of the way. Dragon turns to try to incinerate the Night's Watch for firing an uh, arrow at its vulnerables, and probably discovers that incinerating a brewery is not necessarily the best strategy when having to deal with secondary explosions. It blows up and knocks the dragon for a bit of a loop, which gives everybody just enough time to be staring the dragon in the eyes as it comes back down to Earth, determined to have its virgin sacrificed and destroy the various interlopers that have been inter interfering with its day. <laughs> uh, which, in many ways, the dragon's been kind of hoping for, because I, I did like the scenes of when the dragon's talking with Lupin Wants and is kind of horrified to ex deal with the fact that humanity's just kind of going along with the fact that it's now a dragon in charge demanding human sacrifice. That it almost seems it almost seems offended that they're not resisting it. That a they're not resisting it, and b they're really crappy at doing this because his horde is basically they spray painted a bunch of crap that they had lying around gold, and it's like eh, it's close enough. Yeah. Kind of like everything else in the city, like eh, whatever. We'll just spray paint it gold. It's fine. Which is why it kind of immediately recommends a pretty aggressive foreign policy to get the gold that clearly its own citizens are not getting it. But, again, we've arrived at the scene. The Night Watch has been blown a bit, has been forced to dump, to, to uh, jump into a muddy hole to survive. 
wants um, Vimes and Lady Ramkin are literally staring a dragon down. Everything looks utterly determined to fall apart. When suddenly the Lady Ramkin's estate on the outside of town blows to kingdom come with various dragons flying out and with one dragon in particular distinctly hovering above all the rest. Who has been transformed from his completely awkward and weird state to being completely awkward, weird, and shiny state. Our mascot of the Night Watch, Errol, comes flying out, spewing a flame that is completely new and novel to to all swamp dragons, and flies into save the day? It's worth noting that, and the, the visual is necessary here, is that essentially Little Errol, who is about the size, I don't, I don't think it really gives us a very accurate description of how big these guys are, but, you know, probably about the size of, like, a medium-sized dog, I guess. Has, I would say, like, medium to large dog. That's fine. But still, like, proportioned either, like, a pug or a, a basset hound, where they're just, like, they don't quite fit together, and God should definitely not have created that thing. God but, played no role in the process that is them. Um, but he has changed his digestive system so that flame is now no longer coming out of the front end. He's now using it as a form of jet propulsion to travel at his, what is literally described as supersonic bulletish level speeds for its duel that it has it's already essentially had two or three duels with the noble dragon over the course of this story, but it has now reworked its own system to so as to provide the most effective weapon possible against it. Uh, as it proceeds to ass blast its way across the heavens to confront this dragon using supersonic waves from its own breaking of the sound barrier, to knock the dragon out of the sky, traveling with such speeds that it literally digs divots in the ground and shatters masonry over the town. Yeah, I feel like this is sort of like uh, reminiscent of a lot of Marvel movies where the the savior and the hero just causes hilarious amounts of damage all over the place. And it's, and it's like always uh, in New York City, by the way. I would just like to point that out. Always uh, in New York City. Sometimes it's in Chicago if it's in the, uh, as opposed to Marvel Universe, the DC Comics Universe. Mm. Fair point. I, mean, I I feel in some ways that we're referencing TV tropes that Errol is kind of, this, that's the name of the little dragon, is kind of the embodiment of a lethal joke character. Of where over the course of this story, he's basically been framed as kind of the comedic, pathetic, if uh, humorously and you know, lovably determined mascot of the Night Watch who now, through his own efforts over the course of the story, which everybody basically ignored, has emerged and returned to save the day against all things dragony that are oppressing the town. Yeah, but he's returned to save the day by farting up a storm. Yes, and it's beautiful. <laughs> it's, it's a visual that tickled me, is, is seeing this dragon, again, fart its way across the heavens to victory. As it rather successfully knocks the noble dragon out of the sky from not having the slightest clue about what to deal about this overly plucky little dragon that is determined to bring it down. To say that we jumped the shark. Was there ever a point we weren't hovering over it? About to say, at this point we're jumping the shark? This this book has been riding the shark the whole time. Yeah, I, I, I feel like, you know, this is going a little bit far to say at this point we're jumping the shark, but it's sort of at this point where whatever semblance of trope story we have shifts a little bit to to instead of 
the underdog, the under pug, and sort of disgracefully not really dragon-like thing that we have in Swamp Dragons, uh, sort of trying to save the day, it is revealed to us that the dragon that is has taken over Ankh Morpok and is ruling is a female dragon. Well, j- j- and Arrow. Just to reference one point beforehand, when Errol knocks it to the ground, of course, Carrot, being a law-abiding officer of the Night Watch, goes over to arrest it and then defend it from anyone that tries to uh, harass his prisoner. Yes, because it has uh, destroyed property of the city or something along those lines, and he wants to write it a ticket. As is his want, he reads out all of its crimes against it, which are hilariously detailed to the point that even he agrees to speed them up. See, I, I think this might be why you really like this book, among many other, among a handful of other reasons. But, but in particular, the somewhat main character in 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 the trope genre reads from a book of obscure and and no longer relevant laws in great detail. <laughs> I have Westlaw. I'm up to date on current laws. Thank you. Sounds on brand. But it, as you were saying, we deduced. So, so our our main pug character is is male, mm-hmm. and our our noble dragon is female, mm-hmm. and there are sort of side eye skew references towards uh, a courtship appearing. Uh, on the books not, instead of... Not, not, not even side-eye. The last line of the book is actually basically quoting Blade Runner. The, 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 this is a courtship that they that the author has intended between these two, this mismatched pair. Essentially that their battle in the heavens was a ritual mating dance. Well, Damn, some Blade Runner fans here. Ooh, we try. This is a book that merits reading through the lines of best quotes from movies before you read it, because as said, he is fond of tropes and quotes from other material. Lee, you're not a Blade Runner fan? I am, but Spencer just told me this is a book that requires reading before you read it, so I'm out. <laughs> it merits some of that. But <laughs> as said, the... Dragon successfully saves the day with the combination of the Night Watch's help. Uh, And at the end, the Night Watch are to be rewarded by Lord Venari, who in many ways it's implied kind of intended a degree of this to happen so as to restore the Night Watch and Vimes to a bit more position of authority, ultimately for his ends, but which you don't know yet, but this seems to be part of his end goal. But he brings them together to be rewarded, to be honored by the city, to be respected for what they are, expecting them to demand all the, wor- the rewards under the sun. And the Night Watch, to Vimes' utter joy and humor, defies him in that regard. And, and yeah, so, so it, it's like, well, what do we really want? And it's like, well, you know, I guess we have a good job, you know. Well, we did do some hazardous jobs, like some hazard pay, maybe, or, or, you know, we could do with a a new headquarters since ours was burned down, and, and, uh... Five five bucks a month? Extra five bucks a month? That's reasonable, right? No no less than four. No less than four. Well, that's going a little far. Maybe three? 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 Yeah, not negotiating less than three. Oh, and, you know, Errol did eat that kettle. You know, we, you know, we, you, you need the caffeine. You gotta have the caffeine. 
yeah, you know, if we don't have, have have coffee, then, you know, what are we doing? So could we have another kettle? Oh, and you know what? You know, during the certain off hours, I mean, we only work 12 hours a day. It'd be nice if we had something to, you know, distract us with, like maybe a dartboard. Oh, that's going way too far. Dartboard, I know. I, the moment it came out of my mouth, I knew that was going too far. And so... The chemistry between you two. Man. I said we were well prepared for this, but... And it, this is a moment of when veterinarian... Veterinary needs them to fall into the paradigm he's set for them. He needs them to be greedy. He needs them to fall into the it runs kind of system that he's built for the city. And in many yeah, ways, but he needs to make them heroes. Maybe if they had plumes on their <laughs> no plumes, no plumes. Vimes has made a very big deal about how plumes are not acceptable anywhere near his night watch. Um, but by being individuals who are of either a mix of limited ambitions or more interest in duty in their jobs than in the good graces of the world, I think mostly just limited ambitions, they tickle Vimes to his core, of where they defy the stereotypes that the city of Ankh-Morpork has trumpeted previously over the course of this tale, and defy what Vetinari has kind of built up and expected for them, maybe throughout the entire story, if you buy into him, this all being part of a Vetinari plot. Yeah, he, he doesn't get to crown them as heroes or anything else because they, they just don't step up to it for various reasons among the uh, among the Night's Watch characters. And then for, I think there's effectively two other endings, uh, where other ending is uh, uh, Lady Sybil and Vimes, of where he, despite pretty effectively alienating himself from her earlier in the story of when she kind of rejects her offer of help and support after he's been fired, Go, yeah. goes to her, and it's strongly implied kind of agrees to the romance that she's been proposing over the course of the story. Yeah, and and I, I thought it was very funny. So, as I mentioned previously, my girlfriend read the, the book uh, in anticipation of our episode and and you should have brought her on well she said oh i'm gonna submit some questions and and i was probably too well i was too lazy to actually check if she did before uh we started um <laughs> we, next episode next episode <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah we'll we'll, we'll totally address uh any so that's hilarious bj but yet you patched me in and i didn't even read the thing <laughs> <laughs> priorities priorities you know <laughs> You asked beforehand. Anyway, so what was the hilarious? So so she, so she was just like, oh, you, you know, it was so wonderful that they got together in the end, and 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 you know, she was flirting with him, and he was flirting with her, and it's like, I I skimmed that. Sorry, dear. You know, I uh, I could have really used her on this podcast. It would have been nice to have a little bit of base of support for somebody who apparently liked it. <laughs> okay, the last ending I would effectively say is kind of one that's been implied over the course of the books is what role Carrot may play in the future of this city. And his role is essentially the hero the city had come to it when it needed it. It just never yeah, realized it. He, he was the the king that was supposed to rise up and defeat the dragon. And, the, and he's talking to... The scion, uh, they often talk about. Nabi? What? Yeah, the, the, the scion, they've often been predicting, would show up when they needed it. But yeah, he's talking yeah. with Nabi and Colin. 
and, and he's like, oh, yeah, well, I have this uh, birthmark that's in the shape of a crown. Does that mean anything? Like, I've always had it. Like, yeah, it's kind of weird. Which they've referenced over the course of all of this, that the king, based on stereotype and myth, would have some noticeable signs, would have some kind of book, uh, birthmark, which everyone's poo-pooed as just being unrealistic yeah. myth. And a mythical sword, and, yeah. and he'd be tall and, and, and hero-like. And, and naturally and, charismatic. People would just exactly. want to follow him. To, to the credit of Colin, who has demonstrated himself as being a bit of a multifaceted character over the course of these books, he pretty clearly deduces that, oh shit, we may actually have the king among us. And then kind of realizes that Carrot doesn't want it, and so just kind of keeps it to himself. I like how you say books, like... We've read more than one, and honest to God, it feels like we've read more than one with this one. But well, well, hold on, BJ. Maybe he has. He knows the boot theory, right? I have not read more than one book. But yes, I'm acknowledging this is like a ten book subseries within this. I'm figuring his kingliness will come up again. Uh, as much drudgery as I deal with in an average day, as much dark literature movies seem to be the norm nowadays, having something that was legitimately focused on humor, was legitimately focused on satire, while at the same time building some characters which I actually, characters in a world I actually found interesting and curious to see where they go, was a very joyous thing for me in my day-to-day -day life. This is not going to be in my top ten reams of literature, but for a pleasure, a pleasure read that actually focuses on humor and does so in a successful manner... I enjoyed it. I'm actually intrigued to read Men in Arms next to see where these characters go and see where the story goes with them. I actually have a couple of other books that, that I would recommend per, perhaps in place that that I've read a lot of the series and 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 I, I'm curious what you will find of them. And, and I guess this also speaks to me a little bit. So there's... Um, a uh, series called the myth series um, that, that I read when I was younger and thoroughly enjoyed. And I've sort of reread in the past. And I wonder if I would have liked this book 10, 15 years ago or 20 years ago more. And it's just because I'm older and just didn't want to read something that was basically just, poking fun at tropes and, and a little bit of reference and sort of, hey, guys, do you, do you recognize this uh, reference as sort of the main, to me at least, the main parts of this book? If, if we're going to describe things in terms of tropes, I think there's a line between Narm and Narm Charm, and I felt this crossed it for me, but clearly not for you. Yeah, it, it, to an extent it didn't do it for me, and... and you know, I, I, I always appreciate the shout out that, that you and Lee give the this podcast from from Got Questions. But I sort of feel like, you know, these next couple of episodes are going to be very like the episode that you uh, recently put out, which you're just sort of tearing down at it. And then at least in this this uh, these episodes, we're going to have one person that is, oh, I, I, I actually do like this. So, Point so and thank counterpoint. Spencer for being the, the light in this uh, tunnel. I'm happy to serve as the light in your world, sir. Um, <laughs> do we, uh, Lee, for your 40 pages, are you in any way inclined to keep reading, or are you effectively done with Discworld for the noticeable future? Uh, Discworld, that means the world is flat, right? It does. Okay, checks out. Yeah, no, I'm done. 
Um, I don't, I don't like it. <laughs> I like listening to you guys talk about it, but uh, I'm not going to read the book. So, uh, but I do think I added a lot of value here. So I'm, I'm you, glad I joined. <laughs> you, you served as our lodestone throughout this, and we appreciated you for it. And we're looking forward to what will hopefully be another episode of GOT Questions. Uh, come what Saturday, Sunday? GOT Got Questions podcast recording on Saturday. Yes. All right. Well. Very good. Uh, and uh, I think we have probably one or two more episodes of, of dealing with guards, guards. We have uh, it, it, assuming we can I can make it. you suffer through it. Otherwise, we can move on. Oh, I, I, I to an extent glory in, in tearing down things that, that I do have an appreciation for. But um, as as with, uh, I think, most of the books that, that we're going to deal with in the short stories previously, we're going to do plot characters and world building. Mm-hmm. And I think, honest to God, the world building episode is going to be the best ever because neither of us really know anything about the world. We know, we know nothing at all. In, and we jumped in the middle, have no idea anything about it. I'm going to talk shit about it for, you know, the entire episode. And Spencer's going to be like, oh, but it's great. So, uh Tune in for those two, and hopefully... That's one I want to join. I want to join that one, PJ. It, it will, uh, I'll make sure you're in that one. It will, it will be about 80% me trying to theorize while BJ makes fun of me for even attempting it. So that will be fun. I do recommend everyone tune into that. We're probably going to be completely off base for the entire thing, and that's what's going to make it great. And so, um, and so, the, hmm. the last uh, bit is probably um, I'm suggesting Spencer read a uh, book that I read quite a while ago, um, if he can find it, which is The Two Faces of Tomorrow by James Hogan. Um, And hopefully you can read it by the time we finish Guards, Guards episodes, and we'll then delve into that. If not, we'll probably have a couple of short stories or a different book if he can't find it on the uh, various Amazon or Overdrive or whatever he uses to uh, read things to his lover at night. And we'll go from there. I I think we have a plan. And to our also dedicated listeners, I encourage you to post all of your comments, questions, or outright abuse based on us tearing into what was your favorite work of literature. We're happy to listen to them and happy to comment on them in the next episode. Go to, yeah, go to mangumtalks.com, upper right-hand corner, contact us. That's how you submit your questions. I think listener is more appropriate there rather than multiple. Um, and uh, you can find us on iTunes, and someday I'll figure out how to post it under Mangum Reads as opposed to Mangum Talks. And we have a subreddit dedicated to all the stuff that, that we put out. Um, the subreddit is Mangum Talks, and you can find both Got Questions and Mangum Reads and anything that we uh, put out in the future. And thanks for joining us. Thank you all. Until yeah, next thanks, week. everybody. Spence, Spencer, mm. read me to sleep. Sounds lovely. Thanks, everybody. Till next time. Have a good night.